Welcome to World War I Centennial News, episode number 125. This podcast is about then. What was happening a hundred years ago in the aftermath of World War I? And it's about now. How World War I is being remembered and commemorated, written about and discussed, learned and taught, but most important, it's about why and how we'll never let those events fall back into the mists of obscurity. So join us as we explore the many facets of World War I, both then and now. This week on the show, Mike Schuster continues to explore the unsettling settlements in the Middle East and the Ottoman Empire, this time focusing on the challenges and fate of Armenia. After that, Dr. Edward Lengel brings us number three in his top 10 countdown of the best World War I memoirs with a memoir I was hoping he would include, Ernst Jünger's Storm of Steel. As we head into the coming months and the centennial of the women's suffrage movement, this week, we have two segments for you. One is an overview piece prepared by staff researcher, writer, and public historian David Kramer. The second is a special guest, Rebecca Clayfish, the executive director of a sister centennial commission, the Women's Suffrage Centennial Commission. We're also joined by Phil Mazzara, our own director of development, to give us an update on what we're doing and what we need to get done to break ground on the National World War I Memorial in Washington, D.C. And more, all this week on World War I Centennial News, the Doughboy Podcast, brought to you by the U.S. World War I Centennial Commission, the Pritzker Military Museum and Library, the Star Foundation, and the Doughboy Foundation. I'm Teo Mayer, the Chief Technologist for the Commission and your host. Welcome to the show. As you may recall from last week, among the many issues being dealt with, or perhaps not being dealt with at the Paris Peace Conference, is the fate of the disintegrating and fracturing elements of the former Ottoman Empire. It's a quagmire of cultures, people, and territories suddenly no longer congealed by imperial control. This is especially evident with Armenia. So with that as a setup, let's jump into our centennial time machine and go back 100 years to explore the aftermath of the war that changed the world. Joining us is Mike Schuster, former NPR correspondent and curator for the Great War Project blog. Mike, this week you asked the question, as the peace treaty tries to deal with a myriad of issues, who should have autonomous development? The Arabs, the Armenians, the Kurds, the scattered Greek communities, and, and more important, who needs to figure all this out? That's right, Teo. It's really a very difficult nut to crack, so to speak. The headline reads, Who Will Save Armenia? Is Wilson Prepared to Act? Help Just Too Far Away. This is special to the Great War Project. More trouble determining the fate of the Ottoman Empire. Many at the Paris peace talks, especially British Prime Minister David Lloyd George and members of the British delegation, are looking to President Wilson to turn the former peoples of the empire into self-governing states. So observes historian Margaret Rickmillan. Lloyd George is secretly hoping Wilson, at the very least, will take Armenia under his wing. But Macmillan rightly observes 
the United States had never declared war on the Ottoman Empire, which put it in a tricky position when it came to determining the empire's fate. The only one of Wilson's 14 points that dealt with it was ambiguous. The Turkish portions of the present Ottoman Empire should be assured a secure sovereignty, but the other nationalities now under Turkish rule should be assured an undoubted security of life and an absolutely unmolested opportunity of autonomous development. Who should have autonomous development? The Arabs, the Armenians, the Kurds, the scattered Greek communities? The Armenians, Macmillan writes, brought one of the saddest histories to the conference. The Armenians have lived under foreign occupation for centuries until 1918, when, as a result of the war and the fate of Russia, they proclaimed an independent Armenian state, the Republic of Armenia, on what had been Russian territory. But as a result of the war, the Armenian lands were divided up among Russia itself, Ottoman Turkey, and Persia. The Armenians had become Russian, Turkish, or Persian. But as ideas of nationalism and self-determination swept eastward, the vision of a reborn Armenian nation took shape. It was not a coherent vision, Macmillan reports, Christian and secular, conservative and radical, pro-Turkish and pro-Russian. There was no agreement as to what Armenia might be, but it was increasingly powerful. Unfortunately, she observes, Armenian nationalism was not the only nationalism growing in that part of the world. At the Paris Peace Conference, the horrors of what the Turks had done to the Armenians were still fresh, and the world had not yet grown used to attempts to exterminate peoples. The killing begins in the 1890s, but by 1915, the second year of the war, it had become clear that the killing amounted to an attempt to exterminate the Armenians from Ottoman lands dominated by the Turks. Ottoman troops and local Kurds, themselves awakening as a nation, had rampaged through Armenian villages. Initially, the Turks drove out Armenian villagers, forcing them into desert lands. Many came to believe that the Turks mean to exterminate the Armenian population from Turkey. More than a million Armenians lose their lives. Western opinion was appalled. President Wilson is very pro-Armenian. The U.S. Secretary of State, Robert Lansing, called it one of the blackest days of the history of this war. But what were the Americans, and indeed the British as well, prepared to do for the Armenians? Armenia was far from the peace table. Are the Allies prepared to move troops into Armenian territory? Help was far away, but Armenia's enemies were close at hand. The U.S. and Britain issued fine sentiments, but according to Macmillan, they amounted to little in the end. That's the news from the Great War Project these days, a century ago. Mike Schuster is the curator for the Great War Project blog. The link to his post is in the podcast notes. Next, we're joined by regular contributor, historian Dr. Edward Lengel, who continues his series of posts that profile his top 10 selections from the many, many hundreds of published personal accounts from World War I, with Ernst Jünger's Storm of Steel one of the rare translated memoirs from a German perspective. The best-known German account to emerge from World War I, unquestionably, is Eric Maria Remarque's fictionalized All Quiet on the Western Front, which remains a staple in high school and college classrooms even today. The book was extremely influential in the interwar years outside Germany. In Germany, a very different kind of book struck a chord with the public, particularly after Adolf Hitler's rise to power in 1933. That book, 
Ernst Junger's In Stahlgewittern, published in English in 1929 as Storm of Steel, captured the feelings of many German veterans who remained proud of their wartime service and did not consider themselves to have been defeated on the battlefield. This troubling but powerfully important memoir stands number three on my list of the top 10 personal accounts of World War I. Born in Heidelberg in 1895, Junger was attracted to war from his youth and joined the French Foreign Legion in 1913. His father managed to deflect any possible repercussions of this illegal act, and when World War I began in 1914, Junger was able to join the German Army's 73rd Hanoverian Infantry Regiment without difficulty. Wounded for the first time in 1915, he was promoted to lieutenant later that year. From that point on, Junger, unlike Remark, who saw very little action, remained in the thick of the fighting until near the end of the war. During his service, he was wounded several times and also decorated repeatedly, eventually with the Pour le Marit. His final near-mortal wounding came in August 1918, searingly depicted in Storm of Steel. Junger relished his time at the front, and especially in combat. Echoing the views of many advocates of the Futurist movement, he saw war as not only purifying, but as a transcendental experience. The emotional impact of a night patrol appears in this excerpt from Storm of Steel. These moments of nocturnal prowling leave an indelible impression. Eyes and ears are tense to the maximum. The rustling approach of strange feet in the tall grass is an unutterably menacing thing. Your breath comes in shallow bursts. You have to force yourself to stifle any panting or wheezing. There's a little mechanical click as the safety catch of your pistol is taken off. The sound cuts straight through your nerves. Your teeth are grinding on the fuse pin of the hand grenade. The encounter will be short and murderous. You tremble with two contradictory impulses, the heightened awareness of the huntsman and the terror of the quarry. You are a world to yourself, saturated with the appalling aura of the savage landscape. Above all, though, Junger was a conservative German nationalist. In Storm of Steel in his 1930 follow-up, Cops 125, he took pains to emphasize that German soldiers never gave up on victory, but fought to the bitter end. This naturally endeared him to the Nazis, who eagerly propagated the self-justifying lie that weak and impure Germans, particularly leftists and Jews, had stabbed Germany in the back in 1918 and forced an end to the war. But Junger was no Nazi. He rebuffed numerous requests to endorse the National Socialists and was probably put under surveillance by the Gestapo. Although he served as an army officer in World War II, he spent almost all of his time in Paris hobnobbing with French writers and intellectuals. Yet Junger, who died in 1998, left a troubling legacy. The contrast between his account and those of English authors like Siegfried Sassoon and Edmund Blunden is particularly stark given the fact that Junger fought mostly against British troops and more than once proudly described killing them in hand-to-hand -hand combat. The fact that Storm of Steel remains one of the best-selling war memoirs in the English language today poses room for thought, if not concern. Dr. Edward Lengel's blog is called A Storyteller Hiking Through History, and it's filled with first-person perspectives and accounts that provide a nuanced insight into the era. We have links for you to Ed's post and his author's website in the podcast notes. With the upcoming centennial of when American women finally got the right to vote, we've produced two related segments for this week. 
there were immutable connections between the events of World War I, the view of women in the world, and the passage of the 19th Amendment. So we're going to start with a background piece developed by staff researcher, writer, and public historian David Kramer. This month, June 1919, a long struggle takes a huge step forward. After a campaign that's lasted more than 70 years, Congress finally approves what's come to be known as the Susan B. Anthony Amendment to the United States Constitution granting American women the right to vote. The movement for the right to vote is known as the suffrage movement, and the people promoting it are known as suffragists or suffragettes. Although one could infer an obvious connection between women suffering under the yoke of inequality, the word isn't really related to that. According to the Online Etymology Dictionary, suffrage is an archaic term relating to prayer or pleas on behalf of another. The old French term, suffrage, is a plea for intercession, which comes directly from a medieval Latin term, suffragium, which means the right of voting or a voting tablet, and suffragari, to lend support or vote for somebody. So it's not about suffering. Okay. July 1848, quite a bit earlier, is often referenced as the key date for the suffragist movement. That's the date of the Seneca Falls Women's Rights Conference, largely organized by two women, Susan B. Anthony and Elizabeth Stanton. It sure didn't happen right away. In fact, not for another 70 years, but not for lack of trying. The first attempt to introduce a constitutional amendment in the Congress was in 1878, but it actually finally happened in 1920. It was often a contentious and fractious fight, even among the proponents. There were some like Alice Paul, an ardent suffragist and feminist who advocated for a more militant approach. To quote her, There will never be a new world order until women are a part of it while others advocated a gentler, more diplomatic form of persuasion. But no matter the method, and even as more states granted women the right to vote, very little progress was made at the national level until the influence of World War I was felt. For years, one of the often quoted objections to granting the vote to women had been that they don't deserve full rights of citizenship because they don't defend their country in wartime. Well, the war that changed the world blew that baloney right out of the water. By the thousands, women supported the war effort. In munitions factories, in the Navy, in the nursing and ambulance corps, as critical communication experts like the Hello Girls, and in countless other roles, both in the war and the home front, women were as much a part of the war effort as anybody. The image of women. The restriction of what women could do, of what women were capable of, of the crucial role they play, well, none of this could continue to be ignored. Even President Woodrow Wilson, who was at best patronizing to women's suffrage in the beginning of the war, was won over, finally urging Congress to approve an amendment granting women the right to vote in all U.S. elections, especially when it looked like it might help in the 1920 elections. Well, this is interesting. While a lot of bills considered by Congress include pages and pages of legislation, this amendment, so monumental in its effect, 
seems almost too simple to be true. It only has two statements that read, number one, the right of citizens of the United States to vote shall not be denied or abridged by the United States or by any state on account of sex. Two, Congress shall have power to enforce this article by appropriate legislation. That's it. That's the language of the legislation. Pretty short, simple, and unambiguous. Well, finally, on June 4, 1919, after many failed attempts, the U.S. Senate passes the Susan B. Anthony Amendment by a vote of 56 to 25, just two votes more than the margin needed to pass. This is especially significant because the Senate failed to pass the same amendment earlier in the year in February by just one vote. Meanwhile, the House of Representatives, often a bit more progressive, has already approved the amendment in May. And not by a hair, by a wide margin of 304 to 89. So does this mean that women now have the right to vote? Is it time to pop the cork on the champagne? No. Amendments to the Constitution don't work that way. Ready for a quick and easy civics lesson? Here we go. Written into the core of our national rule book that defines the United States, Article 5 of our Constitution says that there are two ways for an amendment to the rules to be introduced. The first way is that two-thirds of the states can call for a constitutional convention. And actually, that's never happened in the history of our country. The more common way is for Congress to first propose an amendment, which they did. Then once a two-thirds majority of each House of Congress approves that amendment, which is what just happened, then the amendment needs to be ratified or approved by each state. Well, not exactly all of them, but three-quarters of them. In 1919, we only had 48 states. Hawaii and Alaska weren't on board yet. That means 36 states needed to approve the amendment. Then, unlike other kinds of legislation, if the amendment passes the House and the Senate and then gets ratified by three-quarters of the states, the president does not have a veto. Instead, when the final state agrees and ratifies it, the amendment is added to the Constitution of the United States. So, this month in July 1919, that process with the states starts. And it will take a bit more than a year, until August 17, 1920, for the Susan B. Anthony Amendment to the United States Constitution to become the law of the land. And just in time for the 1920 presidential election. How about that? We have links for you in the podcast notes, today's research references, whose gist I took, but whose language I clearly butchered. To continue the story, we're first going to fast forward into the present with World War I Centennial News Now. Here is where we spotlight the ongoing remembrances and the commemoration activities surrounding World War I and World War I themes. Today we have a special treat. Not only are we going to talk about the World War I Centennial Commission, but right after that, we're going to introduce you to the Women's Suffrage Centennial Commission and its Executive Director, Rebecca Clayfish. But first, as everybody but our newest listeners know, the capstone project for the U.S. World War I Centennial Commission is the building of the National World War I Memorial in our nation's capital. 
It's a really huge undertaking that the commission has managed to put together in literally record time. Congress has allocated a space just two blocks east of the White House. An international design competition in 2015, followed by several years of design detail and development and interaction with controlling entities in Washington for such things, has led to a truly stunning and remarkable design that brings together an urban park environment with a national memorial in a unique and really special way. Of course, a huge part of this is raising the money to build it. To talk about that, we're joined by the Director of Development for the project, also known as our Fundraiser-in-Chief, Phil Mazzara. Phil, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Teo. Happy to be here. So, Phil, before we get into the memorial, let me ask you about your background. What major projects have you helped to raise money for in the past? And also, how is this project unique? Well, Teo, I'm at the end of a 40-year career, and I'm delighted to say I've been blessed and privileged to have worked with some of our country's best institutions, both at the collegiate level and in healthcare, hospitals and medical centers, including two organizations that are known as NGOs. So I have, in 40 years, worked in fundraising campaigns totaling around $700 million dollars. I say this in order to provide the background for how one would look at raising money for a memorial which commemorates the service of doughboys and others who served our country more than 100 years ago. And that's a unique challenge. Perhaps the only thing close to that in terms of uniqueness that I've done is work with a former living U.S. president in raising money, and not a lot of fundraisers get to do that. But how you go about raising money with a constituency that is long gone is truly unique. We don't have, as a college would have, a cohort of alumni or parents. We don't have, as hospitals have, a cohort of grateful patients. And so we're really working to build a constituency out of people who either their businesses or families were impacted by the war or have developed an interest in the war like I did some 50 years ago when I was a student and studied the war and the impact of the war on English literature. So for me, personally, this is the perfect culmination of a 50-year interest in the Great War and a 40-year fundraising experience. Speaking of fundraising, let's talk numbers. Where did we start and how much is left to raise? Well, the World War I Memorial, which will be located at Pershing Park in Washington, D.C., is essentially a $40 million project. And toward the $40 million goal, We've raised $27 million and we have $13 million to go. And our hope is that we can raise the remaining $13 million by the end of July or late summer. And the reason for that is if we can secure the remaining $13 million and give some pledges by that time, then we can break ground in the fall, hopefully by mid-October. That's important because that then would enable us to look at a dedication of the Memorial Park around November 11th, 2021, which is an important anniversary for us because that is then the 100th anniversary of the internment of the unknown soldier at Arlington Cemetery. Well, that's a lot of money raised. Who are some of the key donors that you can mention? 
Well, we're thrilled to have some early partners such as the Pritzker Military Museum and Library in Chicago and the Pritzker family behind that. The Star Foundation in New York City were early donors and major contributors that sped us along our $27 million. More recent donors include FedEx, the NFL, and Walmart have just recently come in. We also have about $15 million in proposals that are pending, and so our goal is to raise from that sort of cohort of money and new proposals that we're submitting the remaining $13 million in gifts and pledges by the end of July. This memorial is going to honor the veterans of World War I for generations to come. I don't have an extra million sitting around. What can I do? Well, everyone, anyone and everyone can help build the memorial. So while we're focusing on the larger gifts because they get us to go faster, everyone can make a contribution. The easiest way to do that is to go on the website and then click on and make a contribution of any amount. You can make it in honor of someone or in memory of someone. Then gifts can be made as little as a dollar or more. So all gifts, great or small, get us to goal, and all would be very helpful and gratefully received. I understand that even after the memorial's built, there's an ongoing support and fundraising process that's going to continue. How does that work for us and other memorials? Well, most of the other memorials, I'm thinking specifically of the World War II Memorial, the Vietnam Memorial, have created organizations after the memorial was built and dedicated that are typically friends groups, friends of the World War II Memorial or friends of the Vietnam Memorial, for example. And we're looking at a similar friends of the World War I Memorial, the Doughboy Foundation. And as we put shape and form to this, we're looking at it in the context of what many listeners would know of as an annual fund, either an annual fund from their alma mater or a symphony or an art museum that they support that we would use for ongoing commemoration activities, ongoing ways to preserve the memorial through an active maintenance fund so that the work of fundraising goes on from a capital-focused construction campaign to a more of an ongoing annual support for commemoration and education activities. I know that we're working really hard to put a shovel in the ground. Can we start building it now? I mean, why can't we just start? The Park Service requires that you have the money in hand before you put a shovel in the ground. And that's a good thing because you don't want projects of this nature to begin and then stall. So it's important for us to have the entire $40 million in gifts and pledges in hand so that we can demonstrate to the Park Service that we've got the funding secure. Once that's done, it takes a few months of administrative work before you actually then can put a shovel in the ground. That's why it's important for us to meet these deadlines. If we don't make the July 31 deadline, then we can't really put a shovel in the ground as early as mid-October. It's very important for us to do that because if you then lay out the timeline, we have to put a shovel in the ground in mid-October if we have any hope of dedicating the memorial on November 11, 2021. Any closing comments, Phil? 
This is probably the most meaningful project I've ever raised money for, both from a professional and a personal point of view. I'd like to remind the audience that I am a donor. I would say that I'm a small donor compared to some of the other gifts that we've got. And if I can make a donation to this project, anyone can make a donation to this project. Phil Mazzara is the Director of Development for the U.S. World War I Centennial Commission, raising money to build the National World War I Memorial in Washington, D.C., to honor the veterans of World War I in our nation's capital. If you'd like to contribute in the name of all veterans or in the name of your ancestor, please go to www.cc.org forward slash donate, all lowercase. Or you can also text to give by texting the letters WW1 or WWI to the number 91999. And of course, we have those links for you in the podcast notes. Following up on our women's suffrage theme, in April of 2017, Congress passed legislation to create the Women's Suffrage Centennial Commission through Bill Number S-847 to, quote, ensure a suitable observance of the centennial of the passage and ratification of the 19th Amendment to the Constitution of the United States providing for women's suffrage. The original bill was sponsored by Senator Tammy Baldwin of Wisconsin and won bipartisan support with each female member of the U.S. Senate acting as a co-sponsor. With us today to tell us about the commission, the mission, the plans for the centennial commemoration of the passage of the 19th Amendment is the executive director of the Women's Suffrage Centennial Commission, Rebecca Clayfish. Rebecca, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much, Tim. I'm glad to be here. So, Rebecca, what's your personal background? How did you get appointed to the role? Well, I'll tell you, I would not be here were it not for women's rights to vote because I held elected office once upon a time. <laughs> well, once just a couple of months ago, I was a <laughs> lieutenant governor of Wisconsin, which was the first state to ratify the 19th Amendment, which was constitutional amendment that gave women across America the right to vote. And so this holds a special place in my heart. Initially, I had been appointed to the commission by Speaker Paul Ryan, and then when it looked like I was not going to be able to do as much as I wanted to for this commission, because by that time, it had become an absolute passion project for me, I dropped off the commission and applied to be its executive director. And I was blessed enough to have been chosen, and boy, do we have an extraordinary year and a half planned for America. So what are some of the activities and programs? Well, we've already observed our very first centennial tale. That happened on May 21, which is 100 years to the day since the U.S. House of Representatives passed the 19th Amendment. So if you noticed anyone from the United States House of Representatives wearing a yellow rose on their lapel on the news that night or perhaps in the paper the next morning, that's because the Women's Suffrage Centennial Commission made sure that every member had a yellow rose in order to commemorate that special day. On that day as well, there was a vote by unanimous consent. It passed that the House reaffirmed the 19th Amendment, which was a really special moment. And then on top of that, the Speaker of the House, Nancy Pelosi, held a very special reception in Statuary Hall to honor the suffragists of the past 
but also record-breaking numbers of women holding office in the United States Congress this year. The minority leader was there and gave a wonderful speech. The speaker herself gave a wonderful speech. And it was a great honor that our chairwoman, Kay Coles-James, and our vice chairwoman, former Senator Barbara Mikulski, were also there and gave speeches. We're coming up now on our second big centennial. So watch C-SPAN from 4 p.m. to 6 p.m. on June 4th. That's when you will see the commemoration in the United States Senate. And you're going to see them wearing yellow roses on their lapels, which is the signature flower of the suffragists of yesteryear. That is also the day that you'll see the Library of Congress exhibit opening. So we have so much planned, plans in the works with the White House, plans in the works with states across this nation to make this an incredible commemorative year. Well, you know, this is probably of great interest to our listeners because they're involved in history. And how can people get involved in this centennial? Well, Teo, thanks for asking. (laughs) They can just go to our website. It's really easy to find. You're going to go to womensvote100.org. And you can click on any number of the tabs up in the little hamburger menus. But also, I would suggest just perusing it. Set some time aside because we have so many social accounts, everything from Facebook to Instagram to YouTube to Twitter. And we have so many links because we know that there are going to be five generations of Americans that will be checking us out. I mean, literally everyone who is alive today does not have good memory of this moment in American history because you think even if you are 100 years old, you were a little teeny baby when this history happened. We want to make sure that everyone has a full understanding of the tough and the smart, the courageous women who made this happen for the women of today so that people like me could go on to hold political office so that women could become 53% of today's electorate tale, so that women could make 85% of consumer household decisions, so that women could head four out of 10 American households. Were it not for these exceptional trailblazers, I don't know that any of those statistics might have developed in the way they had. Well, I was actually going to ask you about things people should remember, but I think you just listed them out very well. (laughs) Rebecca, any closing thoughts? I'm really going to encourage you to go to womensvote100.org and click on Get Involved. When you click on Get Involved, you're going to come to a variety of clickable tabs. One of the ones that I'd love for you to search out is the Search Your State tab. You're going to pick out your state, and then you're going to see all the activities that have already been planned for your state, your region, your municipality, your county. But the other thing I would love for you to do is comb down to create history in your community and click on the Centennial Planning Toolkit. That's going to show you how you can do something special in your own community. And some things are so simple as creating a suffrage-themed float for your Fourth of July parade. Independence Day is right around the corner, and you can do this. Or perhaps you want to click on our resolution or executive order template and suggest to your common council member or to your mayor that you would really like to see the centennial of women's suffrage, the 100-year anniversary of the 19th Amendment, commemorated in your town or your city. 
and you can just hand them something that's already right there, a template on our website. And you will have been doing something not only for your own family, but also for your whole community, because this is special, not just to the women of the country, but everybody across America. Women's rights are American rights, and the right to vote is an incredible gift that we must not take for granted. Rebecca, we have a question from our live audience, Frank Crone. He wanted to know if you're planning to publish a book or a magazine outlining what's going to be and what has been done for Women's Vote 100. Well, it's funny Frank should ask that. And Teo, I promise I did not plant this question in your live (laughs) audience. But we are actually, we have a relationship with a publishing company that is going to come out with a magazine. And we're really excited about it. But in addition to that, there are so many amazing authors and experts that we would love for you to check out. And once again, I'm going to push my website on you. It's womensvote100.org. And click on learn, because that is where you are going to find a lot of the resources. You're also going to find links to our short educational videos on our YouTube channel. They're all under two minutes. And so you can learn something fun to share with your family at the dinner table or something quick and shareable that you can post on your own social media or shoot along in an email to your friends. You're also going to find featured partner resources with a bunch of really excellent information, stuff that you may have never uncovered. And the Yellow Rose Journal, which is our blog, and you're going to find a number of our writers who are on staff, and then also some of our commissioners who are guest writers. (laughs) Rebecca, thank you so much for coming in, telling us about the commission, the centennial, and your upcoming plans. My pleasure. Rebecca Clayfish is the executive director of the Women's Suffrage Centennial Commission. The website is womensvote100.org. And of course, we put a link for you in the podcast notes. It's time for Articles and Posts, where we highlight the stories you'll find in our weekly newsletter, The Dispatch. We're going to profile some selections from this week's highlights. World War I Remembrance is focused at Fleet Week New York 2019 events. World War I was a persistent theme through Fleet Week New York 2019. The scale model maquette of the sculpture for the National World War I Memorial in Washington, D.C. took center stage on Fox & Friends as the big event kicked off last week. It was also featured at the Navy's opening reception. The article is filled with links for image galleries of these and other Fleet Week events where America's World War I veterans were remembered. Special Memorial Day Mass in Baltimore for AEF and Polish-American Blue Army World War I vets. The Maryland Catholic War Veterans, the CWV, and Auxiliary hosted the Maryland Catholic War Veterans Centennial World War I Memorial Mass this past Sunday at the St. Casimir Church, Baltimore, Maryland. The services honored the veterans of World War I, as well as the veterans of General Joseph Haler's Blue Army Volunteers of World War I. In the ceremony, the General Legion's General Joseph Haler, post-95, was recognized on its 100th anniversary. Kansas University rededicates World War I Memorial Victory Eagle in new location on campus. For the third and likely final time, the University of Kansas on Monday dedicated the Victory Eagle statue in honor of Douglas County's residents who lost their lives fighting in World War I. Quote, 
monuments like this, Victory Eagle, commissioned to honor those from Douglas County who answered their country's call, makes this world history our local history, said Lori Vanchenna, who is a KU Associate Professor of German Studies. Eighteen of the 68 individuals whose names appear on the plaque were KU students and alumni, so this monument makes this world history our university history. St. Louis threw a homecoming party for the ages in 1919 for the 138th Infantry. St. Louis's own 138th Infantry Regiment returned from World War I with a parade through the city on May 9, 1919, coinciding with the first meeting on American soil of the veterans of World War I who created the American Legion. The massive celebration included the 138ths being cheered by the mobs, and with pillars erected by the city to make their 12th Street a hall of honor for the veterans returning from the Great War. Through Her Eyes Exhibit offers glimpse of World War I through Hatfield Woman's Diaries. Around a century ago, Marion C. Billings left her family's tobacco farm on Main Street in Hatfield, Massachusetts at the age of 37 to join the Red Cross as a canteen worker through World War I. Of the 103 people from Hatfield who enlisted to serve in the War to End All Wars, she was the only woman. A new exhibit, curated by the Hatfield Historical Society, shares the story of Billings' time nursing and feeding soldiers from 1918 to 1919 in France, as well as presenting stories pieced together about the town's World War I soldiers. Access all these amazing stories and more through the summary paragraphs and links that you'll find in our weekly dispatch newsletter. It's our short and easy guide to a lot of World War I news and information. Subscribe to this wonderful free weekly guide at www.1cc.org forward slash subscribe or follow the link in the podcast notes. And that wraps up episode number 125 of the award-winning World War I Centennial News, the Doughboy Podcast. Thank you for listening. We want to thank our great guests, our talented crew, and our supporters, including Mike Schuster, curator for the Great War Project blog, Dr. Edward Langle, historian, author, and speaker, Phil Mazzara, Director of Development for the U.S. World War I Centennial Commission, and Rebecca Clayfish, Executive Director of the Women's Suffrage Centennial Commission. Thanks to Mac Nelson and Tim Crow, our interview editing team, Katz Laszlo, the line producer for the show, Dave Kramer for his backgrounder on the women's suffrage movement, J.L. Michaud for research and web support, and I'm Teo Mayer, your producer and host. The U.S. World War I Centennial Commission was created by Congress to honor, commemorate, and educate about World War I. Our programs are to inspire a national conversation and awareness about World War I, including this podcast. We're bringing the lessons of 100 years ago to today's educators, their classrooms, and the public. We're helping to restore World War I memorials in communities of all sizes across the country. And of course, we're building America's National World War I Memorial in Washington, D.C. We want to thank the Commission's founding sponsor, the Pritzker Military Museum and Library, as well as our other supporters, the Starr Foundation, the Diana Davis Spencer Foundation, and the Doughboy Foundation. The podcast and a full transcript of the show can be found on our website at www.1cc.org forward slash cn. 
You'll find World War I Centennial News in all the places that you get your podcasts, even on YouTube, asking Siri, or using your smart speaker by saying, play WW1 Centennial News Podcast. The podcast Twitter handle is at the WW1 Podcast. The Commission's Twitter and Instagram handles are both at WW1CC and we're on Facebook at WW1Centennial. Thank you for joining us. And don't forget, keep the story alive for America by helping us build the memorial. Just text the letters WW1 or WWI to the phone number 91999 to make a contribution and support the memorial. Thank you for listening. So long.